Thank you, River. You came at the right moment there. Beautiful. Sixth time lucky we got there. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Taking us half an hour. Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Chris Ralph, a man who I think it's safe to say has or had the, the biggest fund selection job in the UK up until recently. Um, Frank, can you tell us a little more about Chris? Yeah, I think that I think that's fair to say. He probably had the, the biggest job. I'm sure there's someone we're forgetting about, but he was presiding over was 130 billion sterling, that's 180 billion dollars. And he had a good career. He was a fund of fund manager at Fidelity, and then he moved on and got this gig as CIO, this, this what was then you know medium-sized uh, wealth manager that became a FTSE 100 company. It's a huge success story. St. James's Place, so, just to, just to St. name St. the company. St. James's Place, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so on any measure, successful career. And uh, what I found really interesting about this interview was that you know, that success brought huge amounts of influence. He could pick any fund manager he pretty much wanted in the world. Yeah, I think that was interesting. And obviously, uh, we've touched on this before, the reception that we get when we visit fund managers for interviews, uh, which is nice because they, they need the media coverage and they think, you know, they've, they've been told to be on the best behaviour. But it's probably not the reception that you get when you walk into the door with, you know, $10 billion tickets uh, stuffed, stuffed in your suit jacket pocket. Speak for yourself, Alex. Speak for yourself. Yeah, but, but I thought that was very interesting. I thought he was very illuminating on the sort of how those conversations can go with managers, particularly actually when it's not the nice conversations, when it's not the, hey, look, here's, here's a $5 billion mandate, but actually we're going to take away this, 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 this huge mandate from you and how, sort of basically how unpleasant those conversations can be. Yeah, he, talk, he talks about potentially putting a company out of business by taking away a slice of slice of cash you know that is a lot of power to wield and it must be tough to take the the human side out of that and you know he he talks about the biases you might have and the pressure that comes with the the weight of assets that he was he was overseeing and and he can't be expected to make every decision a doozy he and his team and so you know, it's it's definitely insightful how a, like a big time fund selector goes about their job. Yeah, I, I really like the the sort of small anecdote where he mentioned the manager want, wanted basically to throw him out of a window, which I don't imagine is a situation anyone particularly wants to be in. Uh, and I and I also really enjoyed his uh, his story about them parting ways with Pimco, sort of around the time of Mohammed um, Alarian and Bill Gross's exit and the fallout there. I thought that was a pretty illuminating stuff so um yeah greatly enjoyed that so without further ado here's chris ralph thanks very much chris for coming on the uh the podcast and being our next victim i mean guest victim um, this is a gentle part this is there oh sorry it is, it is we we are nice we are very nice uh, well perhaps we'll I, decide that at the end of the conversation <laughs> rather than the beginning of it that's a good chris call. could decide yeah <laughs> when we hear from his lawyers um yeah, Chris, uh, we start, as, as we always do, by uh, getting the guests to tell us about their biggest ever investment mistake. Well, the problem is, if we were to try and describe my biggest ever, ever investment mistake, we'd probably be here for hours. But uh, before we started this uh, recording, I was thinking about some of the mistakes that I've made along the way, um, some bigger than others. Uh, and I actually go back to a pretty early stage of my career when I was working for the investment bank Warburgs uh, and I was sitting next to the options desk 
and I thought uh, option trading was really, really cool. Um, and I decided that a great way to play options was to invest in quite short dated options and to try and take advantage of short term market movements. And without sort of going into the technicalities too much, when an option gets quite close to its expiry, what's referred to as the term premium is very steep, i.e. the, the uh, amount of um, optionality that comes from the uh, remaining time in that option is, is, is quite significant to its value. And I invested in a FTSE 100 option uh, on a Friday, and I think it was 12p an option. Put a thousand quid into it, which at that stage in my life was a reasonable amount of money. A thousand and pounds of when, your own money. A thousand pounds of my own money, yes. Oh, right. And when I went in uh, on the Monday morning, the first uh, the first price I saw for the option was six pence, and the market had barely moved because basically the time premium had eroded. Uh, so it was a harsh lesson in a understanding what you're doing and not just trying to be. Um, the, the the king of everything without really um, having a decent knowledge of it uh, and B, um, making sure that you had a clear strategy for how you were trying to make that investment. And um, hopefully I've learned from that and not making any such calamitous decisions uh, thereafter. Alex, you want to come in? Well, I was going to talk about managers as well, if that was all right. You know, obviously over your career, Chris, you have selected i don't know hundreds of managers you've also probably rejected an awful lot more you, you've you've met thousands i'm just interested to know either you know your own mistakes or mistakes you have seen from your you know your colleagues or, or people in general when you know any sort of standouts in terms of sort of you know selecting managers where you've gone wrong or seen other people go wrong basically yeah i think there's probably some really interesting general themes to this and a, a lot of them fall into the classic behavioral traps that we've all read about and then fail to implement in our investing investment strategies so you know seeking confirmation bias by looking for information that supports your decision um, by groupthink i sit on a number of investment committees and it's really, really difficult to avoid the groupthink in uh, in those investment committees. Uh, regret risk, so um, making a decision and then not being um, uh, emphatic enough to either reverse the decision, to add more uh, as the manager underperforms, all those sort of things. I think the the other really fascinating thing about investing in a manager is that you're investing in a human being rather than investing in a company which is just a, a widget manufacturer, for example. And that individual is subject, subject to vagaries in, in their ability to implement uh, a set of decisions. So if you've got a, a manufacturing line that is making widgets, essentially, unless somebody interferes with that process, it's going to continue to make those widgets. If you've got a fund manager, they can be really good at making decisions one day and they come in the following day and they're completely useless at it for all manner of reasons. And therefore, trying to think about how you can assess a manager's thought process rather than actually analyse from a statistical perspective their capability of adding value in particular sectors or stocks or parts of the market 
um, can really make the difference between making a good decision and, and a bad decision. And the challenge is that as managers become more successful, you know, they get great performance track records, as they generate um, more fees for their organisation by running more money, that adds to their egos. And um, this is an ego driven industry and therefore their ability to make objective, rational, um, good decisions for your clients becomes increasingly impaired. And what one wants to get is the individual who is has the confidence to make good quality investment decisions, but doesn't fall over the watershed into them get becoming them, get them at the right time, basically. Exactly. So have, have, you, have, you, have, you, have you ever had to pull the plug on a, on a manager as they tip over their prime and had that tough conversation with them? Well, let's put it this way, Frank. Every conversation you have with a manager when you're terminating, particularly in my it's role tough. at St. James's Place, is really, really tough because you're making um, career-changing decisions for some of those managers. Uh, I was involved in a conversation with one fund manager where essentially I knew that in taking the money away from them, we'd shut the organisation down, and that was really, really tough. So it's never fun, um, but as long as both sides are professional about it, it, it one, one can do it. I think you ever, where you ever say to them, you know, look, you've 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 hit the tipping point. You, we've we've done some maths here, and you've ego versus return ratio <laughs> is, is is not in your favour. Uh, we we were you ever that blunt with them? Obviously, I would assume not. I assume you you, you refer back to he's, he's much nicer thing. than that. Obviously, as you say, life changing potentially decision. Yeah, I think one's got to be really careful about trying to rationalise or back up one's decision. In those sort of conversations, you need to essentially have about a 30-second call or 30-second meeting with the manager where you say, I'm really, really sorry, it's nothing against you, but we're taking our money away. And you then pick up your pen and your paper and you run out of the office as quickly as you possibly can before they launch into you with um, uh, reasons for why you should retain them. In one case, there was a manager that I was convinced was about to chuck me out of the first floor window um, because they were so upset about me, uh, the decision that I'd relayed to them. Uh, the phrase, I think, was um, uh, how are we going to butter our parsnips going forward with the amount of money that you're taking away? I never quite understood that. So, <laughs> as, he, as he tries uh, to defenestrate you at the time. <laughs> Indeed. So... Um, I, I think trying to personalise it or trying to analyse it is a mistake you because that will only... Rip the band-aid off, as they say in the States, just sort of, mm. you know, cut to the chase. Th that's always been my best, my best method of dealing with fund managers in that type of situation. Keep it short and sharp. And then three months later, you can sit down with them and have a cup of coffee and talk about it. And actually, they're much more objective. They're much more rational. And quite often they've moved on to doing other pieces of business, which is fine. Have, have, have any of those times that you've, you've asked a manager, have you been wrong? Have they been some of your mistakes over time? Of course, yes. There have been times where I think it would be hard not to conclude that I've made or I've contributed to a decision based on an emotional response to an environment where actually trying to be more objective, trying to be uh, less wrapped up in the situation that 
one was involved in would have made a better decision. And I think a really good example of that was back in about 2011, 2012, when uh, I was involved in a decision that led to the hiring and subsequent firing of, of PIMCO as a, as a multi-asset manager at, at St. James's Place. Um, you know, we were hugely impressed with the capabilities of the leading individuals. And at that time, the funds were being run by Bill Gross and Mohammed El Arian, and, and both of them, particularly El Arian, who was closely involved in our strategy, were, were hugely impressive and, and world-renowned investors. And, you know, we had the good fortune to go out and see them at their headquarters in Newport Beach and met all of these individuals with brains the size of a planet we've and... we've hung out there frank haven't we we've 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 reduced the collective iq in that building significantly <laughs> by being there for 10 minutes yeah oh. you know it's hugely impressive and you think well these guys can walk on water and it's very hard to retain object objectivity in that sort of decision uh, and you know then we had the taper tantrum and it all went very badly wrong over a short period of time and alarian left and then uh, uh, and then subsequently Bill Gross left. Uh, and there's and been no I, news about him since. He's just, everything's been, been fine after that. Everything's gone great for him. <laughs> but the point being that, that actually, if following that period of poor performance, one had actually retained the position with PIMCO, it would have done really well. There's no question. So now, do we have a choice at that point, considering how bad the news was about the organisation and the possibility that it could have got a lot worse. Hindsight is uh, the most fantastic investment um, decision maker. John Authors at uh, Bloomberg writes this. Hindsight uh, Capital. The Hindsight Capital report yeah. at the end of each year. Uh, and I do find it a great leveller and a great reminder of how difficult investment is and how easy it would be if you knew the information uh, that he's describing in his Hindsight report uh, when when you're trying to make these difficult decisions, but actually retaining Pimco at that moment after El Arian and Gross had left would have been a better decision than actually leaving them. But generally, in my experience, when you get that type of turnover in an organisation, there is more often than not a a bad eventual outcome from it. Did they um, did they make a play to try to keep you in that situation? How, you, did you was that a thirty second phone call or was there? Uh... <laughs> Well, I had a, a rather bizarre half an hour call with, with Bill Gross trying to retain the assets that uh, sticks in my memory. Um, but I think, you know, it would have been hard for them to have managed to realise that considering uh, the sticky ground on which uh, they were at that point and, and the obviously obvious dysfunction in their organisation. Can we can we talk about the call? Or is that is that is that off the record? <laughs> we'll let it we'll let it round this part. <laughs> Started off by calling me Ralph, um, which is fine. Which mistake? And then he then he said, "Well, we we think our our client relationship with St James's Palace is incredibly important." And I said, "Well, you may." I was tempted to say, "You may be running money for Prince Charles, but um, <laughs> it's nothing to do with me." You weren't you weren't the only one leaving that fund at that time. Or something like hundred million in. Uh, well, they were multi. You were multi. You were in a multi asset. We, we were in a multi asset strategy, rather, rather and, 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 but they were losing assets hand over fist. And again, one of the 
challenges that managers face is not only when they're going through periods of bad performance and they get personnel turnover, but when they start to see massive outflows, it really affects their decision-making process. Very hard for a manager to make rational, objective, positive investment decisions when they're trying to second-guess where the next you know, mandate that they're going to lose is going to come from. Another thing the manager section I'm interested to, to hear about is how mistakes change. So are there, you've obviously run teams as well, you know, of, of analysts working for you. Do you see a big difference in the kind of mistakes that a, that a young uh, fund analyst might make versus one uh, of uh, more experience, such as yourself? Because, you know, more, does it change? More, more grey hairs, is that what you mean, Alex? What, what, are, you, what are you trying to say about Chris? Well, he's 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 older. I mean, it's not, not not insulting to say that. Just, um, no, but, 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 I've had the privilege of being described as a veteran on many occasions by Citywire. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah, veteran fund selector Chris Ralph. Um, <laughs> yeah, is, is there a difference between the the mistakes that the, the veteran fund selector Chris Ralph made to you know junior analyst Chris Chris Ralph made? Uh, both make mistakes. The. Uh, the, the question is a really interesting one, to, despite the, the, the humour in which one can add to it. But I think the, the, there is a danger that a younger, more inexperienced analyst may fall back on doing more and more and more and more analysis to try and support the decision. So the confirmation bias of analysis. Well, if I just do a tiny bit more analysis, that means I'm going to make the, make the right decision. And that's a classic wood from the trees problem. Uh, that just doing that additional analysis doesn't actually necessarily make the decision better. On the flip side, the the risk is of someone, and you know, if you go back to um, if you go back to Bernie Madoff, the the real challenge with Bernie Madoff was that there were some very senior individuals whose clients had made money from investing with Madoff's fund when it was in the build-up phase and, and gathering assets. And therefore, they were anchored to the point where, that this guy was a good guy. And certainly, I've had to try and be very careful about not falling into the, well, I know this man and I think he's a good, or this woman, and I know they're a good investor and therefore they should be retained on the platform. Actually, the objectivity is to say, well, is this an investor that I would still want to invest with today? And, and that's where I think I really value the contribution of my colleagues that I have worked with at St. James' Place and other organisations, uh, where they're doing a lot of analysis and I can look at that and say, well, how can I help myself make a better decision from that? You spoke about at the beginning about, about the personal mistake you made with uh, options trading. Um, have you repeated similar mistakes later, but not quite as severely? I've never traded an option since then, ever, <laughs> and have no intention of doing so. I think one of the things that I learned, and I think it's a, uh, it's a piece of advice that I regularly give to individuals that I work with, is to try and be as patient as you can in investment decision making, because it's all too easy to make decisions on the fly to be um, to be carried through into a, into to the point of decision when actually a bit of rationality and a, and a bit of stopping and making sure that one 
thought through an investment decision would lead to a better outcome. And I think, I'd like to think, and maybe I'm being big headed about it, I'm a better investor today than I would have been then because I do think through the type of investment decisions that, that I'm that I'm making. But but yet one of the one of the really enjoyable things about analysing markets and, and looking at stocks and seeing things move around quickly is that it it it, it does get the blood moving and you think, well actually I can see a money making opportunity out of this. And and so if I think about um a a value manager, uh, a value investment trust that I invested in um, back in the summer of last year. Uh, and I did quite a lot of analysis on it. I felt really comfortable with a, a global value portfolio. I felt that it was um, the, the, the cycle against value had been incredibly long. But for four months, that looked like an absolutely disastrous decision. Uh, so it doesn't matter how much patience. 10 years that some of these guys have been <laughs> dealing with but. that's true but but um uh <laughs> but 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 it looked like a really bad decision and it was actually being patient and waiting for it to come through that that, that now makes it look like a better decision than it was but the but the but then the challenge is to say well i'm an absolute hero and you and you double up on on the fund or the the, the strategy just as it gets to the peak of, of what it's doing we always give our guests the opportunity uh, obviously we, we, we focus a lot on mistakes but we think it's only fair towards the end of the interview to give them the opportunity to to brag as well um now last week we should say last week actually i don't know which order this is going out but in a previous episode uh we did have uh anthony scaramucci on the podcast and he took bragging to a pretty uh you know he was pretty comfortable when he got to brag he wasn't that he wasn't that worried about it other people a little, little more a little more reticent but uh yeah you know we've asked about your sort of worst investment mistakes and some of the the, the, the sort of mistakes you've made most often perhaps but what what about the flip side of this well uh i i think i would be different from mr scaramucci in that uh, maybe this is my english reticence almost certainly so, chris <laughs> uh that i feel i feel it's very difficult to make uh, uh make too much noise about uh, or celebrate my my success I think what what I feel um, what I feel is really really rewarding, and I found it um, incredibly satisfying, is when I sat down with a client and, or indeed with an advisor, and they've said to be said to me that my contribution to uh, what I the work that I've done has made a fundamental difference to their clients' lives or their or that individual's life um, uh, over a period of time. And, and I, I, I just find that incredibly satisfying. So it's much more about how one can make um, as broad a possible spectrum of difference to people's lives rather than, um, you know, have I made a lot of money out of a single, you know, good investment? I'd love to say I, I feel like a um, a hero for for you know, putting some gold in my portfolio when it was back at a thousand bucks an ounce uh, a little while ago. Uh, and yes, that was looking terrific at $2,000 an ounce, but maybe it's not looking, you know, quite so good today. But um, I think it's much more about the ability to be involved in the decision-making process that can really um, help a lot of people 
you know, live the life, the lives they want to live over a much longer period of time because the type of um, general decision making that, that, that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in has been better than average. Is that humble enough? It's well, it's always too humble. too too humble, yeah. You've always gone the other way. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to splice in some mooch in there to sort of get it get it back up to the right level. Um, do you feel you learn more from the mistakes than you do from the successes? I mean, that's our that's our general premise. So, sort of the feeling that you know an error sort of lives longer in the memory and 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 gives you more more to work on is is that sort of your assessment of things as well, Chris? I think actually one has got to be balanced and say that you can make or you can develop as much learning from doing something really well and making a very logical step of decisions that led to a good outcome as making what appeared to be a, a, a step of logical decisions that led to a bad outcome and, and turned out to be a mistake. I feel that, yeah, there's some luck involved. You can be in the right place at the right time and, and Definitely, I've had the good fortune to be in that position through a lot of different times of my career. But at the same time, I think if you just focus on trying to develop your or develop yourself from your mistakes, then you probably won't fulfil yourself to achieve all you can in your career. There was somebody who said, some very wise person, who said... Uh, focus on the things you're really good at doing and let others make the mistakes. Uh, and I think that's that's a sort of quite a wise piece of advice because if you try and enhance the skill set that you've got to achieve everything you can in, in the best possible way that you can, then your probability of making good outcomes is going to be higher than the number of mistakes you're going to make. Well, that was our interview with Chris Ralph. Say at the beginning, I, I found that really interesting. Frank, what were the the key takeaways from you um, from our, from our chat with Chris? Uh, one of the things that I hadn't really thought about a lot, we write about this this quite a bit, is is outflows from from major portfolios and how that can affect a portfolio manager. I hadn't really looked at it from the perspective that if you're losing billions a day that actually that's so demoralizing. I'd looked at it from a fairly clinical point of view that they just had to liquidate the stocks and, and sell it. And if they were in liquid positions, it wouldn't really make a difference. But that, the impact of that on your capacity to do a good job must be phenomenal. Yeah, just psychologically, people every day telling you that they don't like you or don't think you're right can't be, can't be fun, can it? However sort of well, well paid you are to, to, to be wrong. Um, it's like a day in the Talbot household. That. Yeah, is it really? <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> um, well, speak, speak, speaking of you and your life, what about ego? Um, I thought that was a really interesting point that he sort of said, you know, success, obviously, you know, you want successful managers, but there is a point at which that, you know, they get very happy with their success and that can actually, that their ego can affect the decision-making process and that starts to have a negative. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, when, when, when you believe your own hype, Alex, which I think you're alluding to is, is, is what you're saying about me, then yeah, it can obviously obviously uh, me, make your decision-making, the hubris gets in the way, uh, worse than it was before. I like that idea that sort of we, we sort of kicked around with them. You're trying to find managers at the right point where they're successful, but it hasn't gone to their head just yet, um, which obviously some you know not something that there's any kind of metric or ratio to tell you. 
Also, the, the, the different mistakes you make at different points in your career. I thought that was a, an interesting insight that he's had. You know, he's, he's been a young selector and then grown into an older selector. I think he'd be comfortable with us saying that. But also, he's employed many people in his fund selection teams. And yeah. He's had interns come to him with great ideas, pitch ideas, and you will make different mistakes and uh, possibly a bit more eager to please when you're younger. But, but then when you get older, you've got more bias. You associate with some companies, yeah, I don't trust them for that. And, and you're not willing to give them possibly a second chance. Yeah, well, well, or you're just a bit too, well, not too close, but you have good relationships with companies that go back a long way and individuals, you know, again, and, and just making sure that those uh, relationships and, and historical dealings don't, don't, don't colour sort of future decisions too much, I think was very interesting. I think I think that sums everything up for today. Um, before we say goodbye, again, thank you to Chris. And also, thank you, the listener, for listening this far. It is appreciated. Not everyone gets to the end of podcasts. And if you have got this far, why not like and subscribe to the podcast too? That would be great. Maybe even leave a review, a, you know, ideally a positive one. Um, and on that note, that's it from me, Alex Deger. And me, Frank Talbot. 